Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. listeners this is jonah goldberg on another edition of the remnant podcast um i thought i was going to put a little more distance uh between us and the matt Continetti conservative geek out episode from two episodes ago particularly in the wake of the trade wonk fest that i did in the last podcast but i had a permanent invitation to my longtime friend um and sort of guru on lots of things steve hayward and he was in town so we decided to do it, and besides, he has apparently some um, issues with uh, some of the things we've talked about in the past. Um, I'm here today just with Jack Butler. Jack, you actually know Steve on your own, right? Yes. Uh, before I started working here, I uh, Steve Hayward randomly posted something about the progressive rock band King Crimson and their 1969 album In the Court of the Crimson King, which is distinguished for this giant red face that's clearly in distress and Steve Hayward was a big fan of them, and I just, out of the blues, emailed him. I don't know how I got his email, but he uh, he was shocked that, I think I was 19 at the time, that a 19-year-old knew something about a, an album that came out in 1969. And uh, I met him in D.C. subsequently, and I don't know, for some reason he's fond of me. I I think it's entirely due to the music, so it has nothing to do with my per- my charming personality. Well, that's pretty obvious. <laughs> but, um... Uh... Now, Steve is one of these guys the conservative movement can use a hell of a lot more of. Um, he actually cares about sort of bringing up next generation young people, uh, pointing them in the right direction about what to read. And, and he's an all-around really great and decent guy. And he's sort of a happy warrior, which I think is a really important thing to be. So anyway, next, coming up next is my conversation with uh, Steve Hayward. We'll see how it goes. But first, I want to talk to you about one of our new sponsors this week because I'm really psyched to have him. It's the, uh, the new book, Scalia Speaks, Reflections on Law, Faith, and Life Well-Lived. It's an intimate look at the wisdom, wit, and warmth of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia, edited by his own son, Christopher J. Scalia, and Ed Whelan, who's a, friend of, a longtime friend of mine, contributor to National Review, a giant among men, the head of the Ethics of Pol- Public Policy Center, and a great guy. In Scalia Speaks, you can discover for the first time Justice Scalia's best speeches on law, faith, family, virtue, as well as his heroes and friends. Get your copy of Scalia Speaks wherever books are sold. It's available now. And I can tell you just as a sort of a Scalia fanboy, it's great. I've been looking through it. It's sort of a classic kind of like you can pick it up, dip in, dip out kind of thing. Uh, Scalia was, I think, arguably the best writer in the history of the Supreme Court. 
Uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes uh, fanboys can fight me on that if you want. But it's a great book, and we're delighted to uh, plug it. We're delighted that they're a sponsor of the podcast. Okay, so now let's get going with our conversation with Steve. Okay, so uh, today we have uh, a friend of mine going back, my God, almost 20, 20 years, something like that, uh, uh, Steve Hayward, who is one of the last great polymaths on the American right. Uh, he's a historian. He used to be a super egghead wonk on environmental issues here at the American Enterprise Institute, doing energy and environmental policy. Um, but he's a historian of Ronald Reagan. He's also a political scientist. And and right now, you're a visiting visiting professor at Berkeley. Believe it or not, yes. Yeah. I like to say I'm an inmate. Um, I sneak in in the, the early hours of the morning when the, before the lefties are out in force. And... So you're like the house goy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, very much so, right. And before that, or not immediately before that, but not long before that, you were the conservative chair, visiting conservative chair at University of Colorado Boulder. Yeah, somehow I've fallen under these gonzo assignments, and I'm kind of an itinerant conservative going around from campus to campus spreading good cheer and heterodox thinking. Well, I mean, <laughs> you're one of the better candidates for it because, as, as listeners will soon learn, Steve has an, an irrepressible quality of good cheer and laughing. He has a temper, but I don't think we'll see it today. <laughs> um, and one of the reasons why I sort of fell over backwards in being sort of a funny campus speaker is that there are so few funny conservatives. We're all so angry about being conservative. And I think it's probably a really good thing to send you behind enemy lines because you're likable. Well, you know, they, uh, the liberals, and the, far, the further left you go, the more they hated that you're cheerful right. and tell jokes. They really hate that more than anything else. You're having a good time in life. And how can you have a good time when there's all this white supremacy around us ruining everything? But that's absolutely true. It's like... Um, the best revenge you can have against the left, if you're inclined that way, is to simply enjoy your life. Right. Because their whole inclination is that everyone has to be kind of miserable about everything. Certainly people who disagree with them. Right. right. There's some very interesting survey research that shows that this is actually across ideologies, but it has to do with the misery of academic life today. And it really is pretty miserable in a lot of ways. But PhDs who have non-academic careers... Uh, tend to be happier people and all those sort of social metrics. Right. Uh, and I think if you add the fact that conservatives are generally happier, uh, I think the data shows that too, that just makes it all the sweeter. <laughs> As uh, my old mentor, M. Stanton Evans, used to say, sometimes you just have to take the sweet with the sweet. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that brings up something also that we're going to get to towards the end of this. Uh, for listeners who don't know, M. Stanton Evans was uh, one of the last, uh, how you want to call it, of the first generation of sort of Buckleyites. Yes. And... Um, one of the authors or, or architects of the uh, um, Sharon Statement, which was sort of the conservative alternative to the um, Port Huron Statement. It actually came out before Port Huron. But Did it really? Yeah. I always remember. I always thought yeah. it was an answer to it. Yeah. I, what I always like to point out about the Port Huron Statement oh. versus the, the Sharon Statement is that the Sharon Statement is what, like 600 words? Yes. And the Port Huron Statement is like 50,000? <laughs> it seems like it's 6,000 words, I think, but it's very repetitive. It's yeah. the same document written, rewritten three times. Yeah, yeah. It's, and, and, it, and, it's, uh, <laughs> and it's so self-indulgent. It's all about us and our feelings. And meanwhile, the Sharon Statement is there's some principles. They're timeless. They're right. good. We should follow them, right? Right, yeah. right. Um, and so one of the reasons why I've, I told Steve a long time ago that when I started this, I wanted to have him on. And we were just emailing and uh, trying to figure out a time. And then I did the podcast a couple weeks ago with Matt Continetti on the conservative dork out. 
and <laughs> and as they say in Hollywood, Steve replied, "I have notes." <laughs> sequel, sequel, sequel yes. right? So uh, we're going to get to some of that in a little bit. But first, I, I want to hear about what it's like to you know to work behind enemy lines, as it were. Is it really enemy lines? First, um, yes and no. I mean, uh, so a few random thoughts. Uh, one is. Uh, I actually think uh, it's been observed a lot. Where you do find conservatives in academia, typically at small liberal arts colleges. Right. Not as many at the big public research universities. And that's a long story. Uh, but I actually think it, there are more opportunities for conservatives at the big public research universities. I mean, I couldn't get hired at Middlebury or Bowdoin or someplace like that. Right. But, but actually at Berkeley, to their credit, there are some people there, some of the liberals who say, you know what, we do have a problem with a lack of intellectual diversity. Robert Reich has said this yeah. in my presence at Berkeley. Huh. Uh, and he's, you know, he, sort of, he doesn't know me, but I mean, we talk, we introduce, I talk to him. He says, yeah, I'm glad you're here. It's a good thing. We need more people like you around here. So, you know, they should deserve some credit for that. A lot of what happens is, uh, you know, talk about a bubble. They've never met a, an intelligent conservative. Their idea of a conservative is simply Fox News or, you know, Sean Hannity or, you know, right. Right? that's what they think a conservative is. Or maybe they'll read a George Will column once in a while, but I doubt it for the right. most part. And, you know, when you show up and show that you've got some chops, they're sort of stunned. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like you say, if you go about it as a happy warrior, they kind of like it. The good ones, right? Now, the far lefties hate it. Right. But what's one of the things that's but going that, on right doesn't now? Doesn't that break? I, mean, socio, I remember you talking to you about the, the bolder stuff. Yeah. Sociologically, doesn't that break down differently with different disciplines? Like yes. women's studies is angry. Yes. Shocking. I mean, against all expectations. <laughs> yeah. But like the political science guys, even if they're left wing, if you know what you're talking about, they can right. have a conversation with you. Yeah. So uh, one of the things I figured out at Boulder, and I've been looking at this more closely, you know, both at Berkeley, but then I'm looking around other universities to pick up clues, is these politicized, radical special studies departments, they're not really taken very seriously by the old line departments, right. by, you know, history. And some sometimes I have uh, people who are, have uh, joint appointments in two departments, so you'll have a person who teaches history from a feminist point of view in the history right. department. But the rest of the people, well, they sort of sympathize with their basic grievances about the world, right? But they don't take them seriously. And I think the radicals know they're not taken seriously. That fuels their anger all, and bitterness all the more. Right. So that's why they demand that their courses be required. You know, a lot of universities, there's this big push to – I remember the protest at Dartmouth two or three years ago when they occupied the president's office. And they said, we demand you know, a course on queer theory in every department. You know, <laughs> physics, chemistry. And the president did what college presidents often do. They say, well, we'll take it under advisement, and then you'll never hear another word about it because they all know this is ridiculous, right? Well, but they won't fight back against it is the problem. Right, right. And that's why, I mean, I find when I go to college campuses, the conservative faculty members who show up tend to be in the chemistry department or something. Right. You know, and they come and they give you the secret handshake and... They, they're cordial with you in public, and then afterwards when you get beers, they unload on you. you yes. Know? Oh, I have a fan club I learned in the physics department at Berkeley. Yeah. It turned out they read my power my entries on Powerline blog. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they're busy people, right? Right, and, right, uh, right. I have coffee with them once in a while. Some of them are not necessarily conservative, but right. they're anti-left. Yeah, right? and, yeah. You know, but, but so, like, you know, in the 1960s, the, the dynamic was really different, right? The... The hard left people, the people they hated were the liberals, right? The Clinton Rossiter guys, right. the people that, you know, who were sort of the vital center, Arthur Schlesinger types. Right. And they kind of ignored the conservatives. Now there are no conservatives, so to, for the <laughs> most part, right? But yeah. Do they, do they articulate the same rage against the, the liberals now, or is it a different dynamic? No, that's very much happening. In fact, there have been two examples of this at Berkeley. I mean, people know about the riot over Milo a year ago, right. um, earlier this year, I guess. Um, 
But a couple of years ago, Bill Maher was invited to be the commencement speaker for the <laughs> December. Yeah. And there were big protests because he says mean things about Muslims on his show. Uh-huh. Right. And people demanded some people demanded that his invitation be rescinded. They didn't do that. But you had a big protest with students with signs and turning their backs on him during the commencement right. address. Maher now says he'll never go back to Berkeley. And he attacks the <laughs> snowflakes, as he calls them all the time. Uh, then more recently, a separate incident that wasn't that involved the campus, but similar dynamic is um, that evolutionary biologist from England. Richard Dawkins? Dawkins. Richard Dawkins had been invited by the lefty bookstore and radio station in Berkeley. I forget the name of the station, but it's what you listen to when NPR isn't liberal enough for you. The Pacifica station. I think it's the Pacifica station. They invited him to give a talk, and lo and behold, it turns out that he says mean things about Muslims. Of course, he says mean things about all religion because he's a militant atheist and he hates religious people. Like Christopher Hitchens did. Exactly. Uh, And he was disinvited uh, for that. So... Uh, yeah, and these are liberal people, right? These are not. Yeah. Um, and 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 you now hear there've been. I clip the articles and keep these in a file, um, digital files, right? Of liberals saying, "I'm terrified of the liberal students nowadays. I'm going to say something wrong." And I have a sense that uh, liberals are now starting to get this. That this is a problem that they've tolerated for too long. I still think they lack courage to do much about it. But one straw in the wind, and I'll shut up. Is the president of Wesleyan University in Connecticut, a guy named Michael Roth. He was at Claremont when I was there in graduate school 30 years ago, and a big lefty. He wrote a big article after the 1980 election about how Reagan was the new Hitler, you know, like we say nowadays about Trump, and every Republican is always Hitler, right. right? He wrote in the Wall Street Journal, we have a problem, we need more conservatives in academia. He used the unfortunate phrase, I think, maybe we need affirmative action for conservative professors, but we've got to have that. And mm-hmm. So liberals are starting to say this, see, yeah. and this is interesting. Well, you know, because it's funny. I mean, I, I used to make this argument all the time, and everything's so crazy now that I don't know how well it applies, but, you know, we're recording this in the American Enterprise Institute. I kind of grew up here in the 1990s as a little policy gnome, and um, and we had, you know, some really impressive people here back then. You know, we had Walter Burns and Robert Goldwyn and, you know, all the guys who knew the Straussian handshakes, which you've yet to teach me. <laughs> and um, the, uh, and we're going to get to Strauss in a little bit, by the sure. way. Um, but uh, most of these guys were refugees from academia. Yeah. What they wanted to do was be college professors, and they were all more, not as they chased out with pitchforks, so that places like Cornell, that literally happened yes. with Alan Bloom, right? And uh, Walter. And Walter, that's right. right. And and so the there's always been this tendency, and it's part of it is just sort of the partisan mindset that is always envious of the things that the other side has. <laughs> and I always used to say, look, if you're so envious of the influence and power of AEI and the Heritage Foundation and Cato, we'll trade you right now. You know, you get those and we get Yale, Harvard, you know, right. and all those places. It's not our fault that places like Yale, Harvard, and Princeton have, uh, to one extent or another, pursued a path of irrelevancy. And if you hadn't chased out all of these conservatives, they wouldn't have had to go as refugees into think tanks in the first place. Yeah. And so I used to say this about Fox is like people say, oh, look at the power of Fox. Well, OK, you know, I'll trade you Fox and we get ABC, NBC, yep. CBS, PBS, The New York Times and right. Washington Post, you know. Right. Um, and uh, I'm not sure that w- argument works quite as well today, given how fluid everything is. But so on the on the podcast I did with Matt Continetti, one of the things that we got into was how much we all love Hillsdale and how great Hillsdale is. But I have this longstanding gripe that we don't need a lot more Hillsdales. We need more conservatives at places like Berkeley yeah. and all of that, right? You kind of agree with that. Absolutely. How do we do that? 
well, I, you know, we, we have to, you know, when a guy like Michael Roth at Wesleyan says we need conservatives, we should say we'll find some for you. Uh-huh. There are, I mean, one, there's a chicken and egg problem here, uh, which is uh, if somebody like Jack Butler here says, should I go to graduate school and get a Ph.D.? I hesitate for a very long time whether to say yes or not, because the, I mean, you know, the, the job market is flooded anyway, no right. matter what your ideology is. Uh, conservatives are, I think, actively discriminated against. I've got a blog post up this week about a job announcement for political theory at Cal State Long Beach. And they say the person they want teach intersectionality, hybridity, anti-colonialism. <laughs> you know, so the, the subject says no conservatives welcome here. Right. right it's right. pretty obvious what they want. Uh, so. Uh, the supply is very small. Right. Uh, I mean, the, I put it another the way. The demand is very small. Well, the demand is very small, but let's put it this way. If, say, the top 200 universities said, we all want to hire two conservatives for political science or right, any right, of right. our humanities departments. The bench is kind of shallow there. They'd run out after about 50. Yeah. Or they'd be cannibalizing from other universities. Right. right? Sort of like with black professors between Harvard and Princeton and all that. Where exactly. The, the all-stars are really great, but there yeah. just aren't that many black PhDs. It's, it's very much like that. And so I do say, and it, it partly, it, it, I, I mean, it's partly I'm making a rhetorical concession, but there's some truth to it. And I say, look, we can't entirely blame the liberals because we don't show up anymore. Right. And by the way, I, you know, I'm, I'm a weird case. I went to get my Ph.D. not intending necessarily to enter academia. Uh, I wanted to be a think tanker or mm-hmm. a journal, a writer. I wanted right. to know. I actually went to school to learn something because I thought my education was incomplete as an undergraduate. And Madness. I know. Well, 35 years ago, also, graduate school was cheap. Right. Nowadays, that's the other thing is it's super expensive. Am I right. going to tell, you know, the, what I would tell Jack Butler is if you go to graduate school, do not spend a dime of your own money. You know, that's right. I actually paid for my first year of graduate school, but it was cheap. I could make make all the tuition in the summer working as a truck driver, which is what I did. Can't do that now. Just for listeners who don't know, um, or if this is their first podcast, Jack Butler is the 24-year-old. 24, correct. Uh, 24-year-old bastard. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I remember 24. <laughs> um, he's my research assistant here at AEI, and... Um, and uh, he is the sort of part-time producer of this podcast and the subject of uh, much playful scorn by me on previous episodes and future episodes and well, probably later I, in this episode. I can join some of the some of the ritual abuse of, uh, of Jack because I, I made mean, this is actually a theme. You know, there's the old saying that youth is wasted on the young. I do sometimes think that education is wasted on the young, too, yeah. and probably not at Hillsdale. I think they do a better job of it, but... No, you're probably miseducated still anyway, Jack. I don't know. But. Well, the, it's a readout of West Coast Drowsians, so I guess East, <laughs> East Coast Drowsians would say I was miseducated. Yeah, the West Coast, we're taking over the Midwest first and on our way to yeah. New York. You know, right. <laughs> right. Well, if this was a video podcast, we would have a map of the the <laughs> West Coast Drowsian horde overtaking the continental <laughs> shelf. But we'll get, we'll get for those of you who are dying to talk about Strauss, we'll get there. Don't worry. Um, all right, Steve, hold that thought. We're going to turn off your mic for a second. Because uh, uh, I really want to talk to you about, uh, and to the listeners, about one of my favorite things, which is to drop an enormous amount of acid or maybe eat like a whole pizza pie covered with mushrooms and then, you know, uh, commune with uh, the more mystical forces in our universe. Uh, no, actually, but I, that's not really true. Well, it's kind of true. That It's a long story. But uh, what I really want to talk to you about is tripping.com, which has made me think about all of this. Uh, I, they've advertised with us before. It's a great idea. I'm always nervous about new advertisements because, you know, I'm, I'm terrified that I'm going I'm to have to advertise or, or be a pitch man for something that uh, I'm not comfortable pitching. But this is a great idea for a website. Um, Tripping.com is basically like the Trivago, you know, that creepy guy who looks like he should be cruising playgrounds. 
um, on the commercials for um, hotel sites. Well, this is sort of the same thing without the creepiness for a website that uh, basically lets you search all of the vacation home rental sites combined into one. Uh, normally, people who are going to look for a vacation home, they'll visit up to like five different sites. Uh, this lets you sort of compare and contrast all on one site. Um, and this is something I didn't know until I found out about tripping, is that uh, a lot of houses are advertised on different sites at different rates because uh, there are some sort of fancy pants sites where the consumer expects to pay through the nose for something, and yet the person who's renting it may have a bunch of units that they need to move, so they'll also put it at a discounted price on another site. Uh, Tripping.com lets you catch that, which is kind of awesome. Also, I'm a big believer in um, renting places uh, rather than staying in hotels. I mean, I like nice hotels. I like to tell people my wife is not high-maintenance about much, but she's high-maintenance about air travel and accommodations. And um, sometimes, so sometimes the hotels that she wants to stay in or that we want to stay in are outrageously expensive. And you can actually get a pretty amazing apartment or beach house um, for a much longer period of time for less money. And one of the things I think that's so much fun about that is particularly if you're traveling with your family, uh, you can cook um, while you're away. We like to cook. If you like to cook, I think that's one of the fun things. Some nights, like if you're in Paris or if you're at the beach, Sometimes you just don't – you're just exhausted from the day that you had and you want to um, sort of veg out in front of the TV or with a book or or, or with a drink um, and sit on your deck and that kind of thing. And this way you can sort of avoid having to go out to a restaurant when you don't want to or ordering room service, which as we all know costs an arm and a leg and maybe a kidney. Um, and this is a great way to sort of like create family time. You have more space to play games with your kids. You can invite people over. You can have little parties. Um, you can also feel like a local, which is a lot of fun. Um, it's not right for every occasion, but it's right for more occasions than you think. And uh, my wife and I, we've done this um, uh, both at, out at the beach in sort of uh, in Bethany area where we had a great time where we stayed out for a lot of, a lot of long while. We can invite friends to come stay with us for a weekend. Um we got to cook. If you want to go out to a restaurant, you can still go out to a restaurant. That doesn't change whether you're in a hotel or in a guest house. But you can also play Monopoly. You can also go to use the sort of beach toys and pool toys that some of these houses have. It's a great alternative to the normal way of sort of just paying an arm and a leg and a kidney for a hotel. And um, with Tripping.com, one search lets you filter, compare, and sort over 10 million available properties on trusted sites like VRBO, TripAdvisor, Booking.com, and others. Don't wonder if you're getting the best deal. You'll save an average of 18% per night by booking your vacation with Tripping.com. So don't forget, if you want to save time and money while booking the perfect vacation rental for your next trip, head to Tripping.com. And there's the really important part. Head to Tripping.com slash dingo today. That's Tripping, T-R-I-P-P-I-N-G dot com forward slash dingo. We get no credit if you go there and don't do the dingo part, because the dingo part matters. Tripping.com slash dingo. Thanks very much to Tripping.com for being a sponsor. And now let's get back to our conversation with Steve. We can turn your mic back on now. So I remember John Miller wrote this great piece for National Review a few years ago. Oh God, it was maybe 10 years ago now, about how they're closing up. Very, very difficult to find a military historian. Mm -hmm. 
on a college campus, right? Yeah. And there are actual lavishly funded chairs in a military history that the history departments refuse to fill because they just find military history repugnant. And one of the things I find fascinating about that is I understand the ideological opposition, right? Because right. uh, military history is the the one long tail of <laughs> oppression and imperialism by pale penis people, and we must not have <laughs> condone that or even pay attention to it. But if you go to any of the bookstores that are left, mm. you go to a history the history section, I don't know, 80% of the books are military history because that's the vast majority of the history that, right. that mostly men want to read. Right. And you would think just simply as a market thing, some of these universities would say, hey, look at this opportunity we have to do this, and yet they don't. So uh, universities are actually quite reactionary institutions in the ordinary sense of that word. And one of my favorite provocations picks up on exactly that point. I will say, I've said this a couple of lectures, and it really upsets people. I said, why is it that we have all these best-selling biographies of Hamilton and Adams? They're all written by journalists right. in military histories. None of them are written by academic historians, with one or two examples like Victor Davis Hanson, right. quit academia. Right. Uh, maybe Chester Patch, who's the one good academic military historian at Ohio University, the only halfway decent history department from our point of view in the country. Right. One, right? Uh, why is that? And how come there's no ambition amongst uh, historians even to write something that engages the public on the level of liberals like Lewis Hartz or Richard Hofstadter 50, 60 years ago? Right. But it, it, it's absolutely no. An- what's the answer? They have no answer. It's, well, it's not where the discipline's going, you know, everybody, you know social history. and all, you, know, you get the fog of uh, a politically correct nonsense, but it really gets under their skin to point that out. Look, so I, mean, I do that a lot. I, 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 have, I have zero problem with studying social history. I mean, I think there's some yeah. methodological problems because it turns out that the nobility and the rich people were the ones who wrote stuff down and their records about. And there's only so much you can do right. about what peasants did when they were all illiterate and had left no records. And But you can still do interesting things. You know, it's like Howard Zinn's stuff, you know, where he explicitly says he's telling the story from the perspective of all the victims, right? Yeah. I never, I don't want to say that we should... Right. Expunge that. We should definitely have that part of the history, but that shouldn't be the only history we learn. And there does seem to be, I'm trying to avoid getting into arguments from my forthcoming book, but there really is sort of a Schumpeterian new class problem, right? Where they, the sort of, the the priesthood wants to say that only certain stories are morally valid (laughs) and exclude any other stories from our past. The analogy I always use is, um, Remember the, of course, you remember the movie Goldfinger, right? <laughs> of course. So Goldfinger's plan, his de- devious plan in the James Bond movie, wasn't to rob Fort Knox. Right. It was to irradiate the gold in Fort Knox so that it would be unusable for 10,000 years, thus making the value of his own stockpile in, you know, infinitely more valuable, right? right? Until Bitcoin came along. When, yeah. Right. But that's sort <laughs> of what the academic profession wants to do is just simply say... Ah. The story of the victims is the only legitimate story about the past. And anything about America being a good place, anything about the West having a good tradition to it, any of these ideals that used to be good, they all must – it's sort of the Nietzschean genealogy of morals thing where through resentment they flip it around and they make virtues into vices. And and I I get that tendency. I just wrote a book about that tendency. But what I don't understand is the boards of trustees, the the, the administration – I was on the board. I was the young trustee on the board of trustees of my college. These guys were much more cynical and and practical about the institution and where it needed to go. 
um, until it ran into the orthodoxy of the academics. And you would think that someone would be able to push through that. I mean, the biggest boosters at most of these schools hate what these schools are doing, right? Yeah. So why are they so immune to market forces? Uh, that's a great question. I'm not sure they'll be immune much longer, right? Uh-huh. Uh, you know, we've already seen a few schools close down and or be on the brink like Sweetbriar. Right. Um, but at this Antioch, right? Didn't Antioch? Yeah, that was the crazy left wing one, right? Yeah. Who's uh, who's? We thought their crazy consent policy on sex was nuts, and now it's uh, a national policy. Yeah, right? they were, they were trendsetters. <laughs> they were. They could back in business. I mean, this is not a new problem. I know, I know conservative professors have been complaining about negligent trustees for decades, and part of the problem is a lot of trustees. Well, you know what kind of people they're like. They're busy people who have their own businesses to run. It's kind of an honor. It's like a, it's a club for them. Right. They couldn't the, get on the board of the zoo, so they're right. on the board of the local college. Right. right. Yeah. And they don't really. And, and it's a collective action problem. You know, the uh, there may be one or two who dissent, but you know, are you really going to spend your time on the phone rounding up a majority to overrule something? That, and you know, the agenda is controlled by the president and the provost and the deans, and so it just doesn't happen. I don't think also, it ever will. Board, the businessmen board members come from a corporate culture of deferring to your experts, right? Yes. I hire the best lawyers. I hire the... Right. So these guys with elbow patches come in, and they right. say, this is how we have to do it. And they're like, well, right. this is what, how they have to do it. And that's right. why I was such a pain in the ass on my board of trustees. Oh, bad. I, I wasn't all that deferential. <laughs> well, and if you say, I'm sure, I'm sure a lot of trustees do say, what about these crazy professors in this department saying X and Y? And the president will say, truthfully, I can't do anything about that. They're self-governing departments, and uh, you know the, and that's just the way academia has been run for over 100 years, and I'm very limited in what I can do. And then what do you say, right? right. And that's sort of true. But isn't there – I'm going to put a proposition to you, and I'll, I'll put it more starkly and more unfairly than, than necessarily <laughs> warranted, but to get to the point. Isn't there something incredibly um, cowardly and um, – uh, well, cowardly will do – about about the ethics of mainstream liberalism, and I'll go. I'll let's go back to the guns on campus crisis at Cornell. Right mm. for the listeners who don't know, I mean, I know you know this history better than I do. But Cornell in '68 had this major uprising. '69, '69. Yeah. Sorry, it's, uh, sort of black power activist types. One of whom went on to run your pension fund. <laughs> <laughs> I know, um, and uh, and they had literally had guns on campus, and people like Clinton Rossiter at first stood up. And said, you know, look, this has to be this is this is a community where certain principle enlightenment principles of tolerance and free exchange of ideas and blah, 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 blah matter. And and then when the pressure became got to a point, he caved and he and there is something particularly a a left winger gave me this theory a long time ago. So it's not like this right wing delusion of mine. There is something about the white left that has a very hard time, particularly the white male left, yes. of standing up to the black left or to feminists. They just sort of cave. And I, don't, I personally want to blame it all on the pernicious influence of pragmatism. But, um, but you know, that's my bugaboo. But whatever happened, like, I'm not a huge fan of Arthur Schlesinger, but when push really came to shove, mm-hmm. he was fairly heroic in standing up to communists. I don't know. And that... against multicultural. His last book was The Disuniting of America, an attack right. on multiculturalism, when he got slagged by the radical left for that. But yeah. yeah but And yeah. so, you know, what is it about these programs that can't produce? I mean, I personally don't care if you liked the New Deal, right? You know, <laughs> but you should be able to still, you know, you can't simultaneously argue that things like the New Deal were a wonderful part of the unfolding principles of American liberty and traditions, and they weren't radical, and it was great, and all that kind of stuff. But not defend 
that larger tradition, right? Yeah. And and that seems to be baked into the cake of so much of the sort of the centrist types. I think maybe it, it might be as simple as liberal guilt, and, but and I think it's gotten worse, actually. I mean, at least in 1969, you could say they had guns, point, loaded guns pointed at us. That uh, that's the old Dr. Johnson line about the prospect of being hanging, uh, hanging, uh, prospect of being uh, uh, hung wonderfully concentrates the mind. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Uh, but today, what happens? No, the students show up and they cry. Right, <laughs> that's a good. Point. And everyone's oh, okay. Well, we'll do. You know, we'll set up a diversity office and we'll right. spend more money on programs. So they're not even. You know, they're not even showing up with guns right now. Yeah. Um, Hugh Hewitt would be is surely proudly note that Ohio State University. The, excuse me, oh, the Ohio State yes. University is one of the only. Places that is publicly just not back down yep. to a, a student thing like that, and yeah. in response, the students just kind of drifted away and yeah. didn't do anything. But I think the I, I think the problem is uh, you kind of allude to it in, in your setup of the questions is your basic moderate liberal. When a black student or women or minorities say we've we've been oppressed in American history, well, those claims are correct. Yeah, what of course saying, they are. Right. right. And so they the Zinn story is a. Right. It's exaggerated so, on Zinn's part, but it's a one that should be considered. Right. right. So they have they have a sort of basic sympathy with those grievances. Right. And, and in the abstract, the impulse to want to acknowledge those grievances and maybe, you know, fix them, do something about them is also entirely decent in the ordinary point. Now, part of the problem is, is uh, the erosion of academic standards, the coddling of really junk scholarship and really radical nonsense. They don't have any courage to fight or draw the line on that. Privately, they might. But... And partly that is, I think, the nature of academics. They want to be left alone to do their own work. That's kind of understandable. Uh, but what it means is, is that, uh, uh, you know, administrators, uh, you know, will sort of bend to, to all this, right? I think that's what happens. Yeah, but so, I mean, on, on this point about the historic oppression of... Historic... Squeaky wheel gets the grease. It's yeah. That, you know, yeah, no, it's not I... that much more complicated. But... but so when that crazy thing happened at Yale, when mm. the... the, yes. the the, essentially the RA for this house, right? right? They're called masters. They were called masters. Now that you're not allowed to call anything a master. <laughs> right. right? I, I'm waiting for when you're not allowed to get a master's degree. I know. You know? Um, uh, I went and looked at, uh, with actually with Jack's help, the the syllabi, syllabus, yeah. um, of, of Yale, or the course catalog, I should say. Right. And um, literally scores, if not hundreds of classes on... Historically aggrieved groups of yeah. victims of blacks, this uh, you know, queer theory, all this kind of stuff. Um, one professor teaching two classes on like on the founding and, right. and the Constitution, and and all these kids are claiming that their voices aren't heard or represented, and they need safe spaces. And how dare you say you know it's okay to be disagreeing with me? We need safe spaces. There were. Close to a hundred right. African American Study Center, uh, Black Student Union, Queer Student Union—they have safe spaces. They all, you know. And, but so the point is, it's sort of China Syndrome grievance stuff. Any it, feeding the alligator one limb at a time. Everything that they could possibly have wanted in terms of being recognized and respected for their victim status, which they actually don't really live in. They're talking about a historical victim status that right. they're sort of getting victimhood on the cheap from. Yeah. And it's hard if you're a Yale student to think that you're a victim. Yeah. No, I don't. <laughs> it's a ticket to, right? And, yeah. um, and so I, I just don't know where all of that ends. And I'd also, so, but anyway, we can. I yeah, mean, I've gone forever about it. I will, I will tell you this just to cheer you and, and listeners up. Uh, so, first of all, when I got to Berkeley a year ago, I contrived to get the Daily Cal student paper to do. I baited them into this. They did a front page news story with a big picture of me and then an editorial, uh, both on what a horrible human being I am. Uh-huh. That had the desired effect because I had a long waiting list to get into my class. Excellent. On the Constitution. And 
And here's the other thing. A lot of the students who signed up were liberal kids who told me we wanted to hear something different. Yeah. We're kind of tired of the same old thing. And I'm doing a second year in a row. I'm doing a seminar at the law school with John Yu. Uh-huh. This is interesting. I say, John, I can't find our classroom. It's not on the website. He says, oh, they never put my classrooms up on the website. <laughs> Because he's sitting on protest. So, you know, all the other, but the notice is that the cl- classes that John and I have offered have long waiting lists, twice as many, and it's a liberal law school, right? Yeah. Twice as many students sign up for it as we have room for. And you have, you know, a dozen classes on all the radical theories, and none of them are even half full. So, it's, it's, and it's, you think there'd be a market test at some point. It's, it's interesting you bring this up. So, uh, <laughs> Williams College, I went and spoke there a few years ago. I was invited by an organization called something like the group for uncomfortable learning. Yes. And um which I had never heard of and it was <laughs> unique to them and they have some you know some conservative funding that's yeah. sounded kind of secret. And I'm normally not a big fan of lying about what your ideological perspective is. Like I think you should own your label and defend your label. Um and I historically that has been a big source of conservative strength, you know. But at the same time, they made a very persuasive case that if they called it you know, the Liberty Group or whatever, the conservative cl- right. club or whatever, only the already converted would come. Yes. And so at Williams, they called it uncomfortable learning. And so I got this great room full of people with, you know, various, you know, uh, piercings and multicolor hair and all that kind of stuff. And the great thing about it was as I started to give my spiels about my last book, the kids were like, they had the sort of same expressions my dogs have when they think I'm driving them to the park and we're really going to the vet. <laughs> like, wait a second, this isn't the way to the park. And they're like, wait a minute, wait. Right. This, I thought uncomfortable learning, I thought you were going to tell me things I already agreed with, right? Because right. it was supposed to be uncomfortable learning sounds transgressive right. and rebellious. And that's one of the secrets on college campuses. I bring this yeah. up. Every campus I go to, I always try to make this point because there is this dogmatic, unearned, unstolen base, you know, uh, that they assume liberalism is rebellious, right? And so I always like to ask them, I always say, so let me get this straight. Your professors are liberal. The administrators are liberal. Your high school teachers were probably liberal. The media is liberal. The publishing industry is liberal. The fashion industry is liberal. The music industry is liberal. Hollywood is liberal. And you think you're sticking it to the man by agreeing with them? (laughs) (laughs) And they're all like, wait a second. That's not right, you know? And But I I do think that this thing about... um, uh, being controversial in a good way, right? Not idiotic way like right. Milo, right? right? But an actual, you know, serious, thoughtful way is extremely attractive. And this is a good segue to me sandbagging you about Leo Strauss. Ah, uh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I went, in my college, I had the Strauss and Cropsey. Oh, yeah. Very, what is it? The History of America, uh, History of Political Philosophy. History of yeah. Political Philosophy, which I just had. I, I had, I did not know what Straussianism was, right? I just thought it was a really interesting collection of essays on right. political philosophy. So I, in a class, on a paper <laughs> on Nietzsche, I, I think it was the Werner Downhauser yep. one, right? right? And so I quote Dan, you know, this right. perfectly legitimate, you know, all these scholars at the University of Chicago right. or whatever, and I quote, my professor circles the quote and in magic marker along the margin of it in giant, like, 800-point font in but, with but freehand writes... Strauss sucks. Yeah. And all, there's an argument for you. Yeah. 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 But the thing was, is like, oh my gosh, who is this guy that has made them so angry? Right. <laughs> and it was, it was like, you know, it's sort of like my, one of my favorite lines from The Simpsons is when Chief Wiggum <laughs> is saying to Ralph and, and, and Bart, who are playing in the closet where he keeps all his guns. And, and, and Chief Wiggum says, 
what is your strange fascination with the forbidden closet of mystery? You know? <laughs> There's, it's like forbidden knowledge. You're not allowed to pursue this made it so much more attractive, right? And so I be kind, of, kind, of, kind of became, if it pisses them off this much, I must learn more. Right. And then, so when I came to AI and found out that I had inadvertently fallen into a nest of Straussians, <laughs> I started, you know, studying up on it. So for listeners who are completely lost who this Strauss guy is, he's not the composer. Steve, why don't you just answer the basic question, who was Leo Strauss? Yeah, okay. I'll try and do this briefly and exoterically. See, I've already screwed up. Yeah, you messed <laughs> up already. Uh, so, you know, he was a, a, a German-Jewish emigre, left Germany in the early 30s for the obvious reasons, ended up in America at the New School for Social Research, and founded kind of his own school of um, political philosophy. And so there's three parts to him, which I think I can describe coherently or cogently and briefly. Uh, one is he thought we need to do like Heidegger, who was his mortal enemy in a lot of ways, he thought we needed to go back to the classics. Who, who he knew, too. Who he knew. He, yeah. too, he went to attended some lectures of Heidegger's and, right. and realized later he was an evil guy with Nazism and all the rest of that. I mean, Strauss, I mean, I have my own sort of peculiar account about this in my Patriotism is Not Enough book, where I say Strauss thought that the rise of Hitler meant something has gone radically wrong. Not just wrong with Germany, but there's something wrong with Western Enlightenment thought itself. That, and not, he's not unique in that. And sure. there's a certain parallel with the Frankfurt School in a certain way. Right. Uh, and, you know, Vogelin and people like that. Vogelin, another refugee at the same time. Anyway, he said, we need to go back to the classics and start asking the basic questions over again. So he liked, uh, you know, Plato and Aristotle. And uh, so that's one thing. Is the, the classics had a better approach to understanding political life. As Irving Kristol put it, Leo Strauss taught him that the moderns were looking through the wrong end of the telescope. Yes. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Uh, but one part of it was he was against historicism, which is a variation of your what leads to pragmatism. Right. It's it's always the view that we know better than I mean, uh, you know, common sense way of putting it. We know better than everybody who came before us. Our perspective is to use their language, privileged over their perspective. Right. right? And Strauss thought, no, you actually ought to read Locke or Kant or Aristotle or anybody uh, first as they understood themselves, right. rather before you understand them better or differently because of our, you know, different circumstances, whatever. Uh, you don't ignore context, but you you might want to begin with a question, is what they're presenting might actually be true. Right. And so, in other words, you take seriously the old great thinkers, and not they're not just a catalog of museum pieces, you know, waxwork figures from our past that we study only maybe out of mild curiosity or pain-loving antiquarianism, we put it. So we rejected historicism. Which says, you know, our own horizon is the only thing we can see beyond, right? It makes us prisoners of our own time. Mm -hmm. So that's a very big challenge because historicism is the premise of an awful lot of modern thought, mm -hmm. right? Second and more controversial, he believed that a lot of the great thinkers concealed their true teaching. This is a doctrine of esoteric writing. Uh, I understand all that. Uh, I find that a lot of—this is where I say I'm only a Straussian on Tuesdays and Thursdays. A lot of people who in that tradition, like a lot of academic fields, the imperative seems to be to get more and more precious and esoteric readings of things. So they just absolutely torture the text the way right. social scientists right. torture data. Significant silences is the famous phrase, right? <laughs> right? Yeah, well, that's the old joke is uh, how many Straussians it take to change a light bulb? The answer is none. The light is made conspicuous by its absence. <laughs> <laughs> And, and I, you have to, right? Sorry. Yeah, and I believe that if this if this podcast is played in reverse, all of the secrets of Locke's Second Treatise will be revealed. <laughs> exactly, right? It's you know, like the Beatles' White Album. Yeah. Uh, so that there's a there's a third one. Oh, and then he he, he you know he took the um, uh, the tension between reason and revelation seriously. Right. And he thought, I think this is true and very accessible. He thought that the secret of the dynamism and success of the West 
was precisely these rival traditions or the rival sources of authority. Right. And it's true that there are some conflicts between them, right? He wrote a lot about Aquinas and uh, and and sort of Harry Jaffa wrote about Aquinas, and uh, but he, he took them very seriously. He didn't he did not go along with the Enlightenment rejection of religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, so and so that's why he attracted a lot of uh, re, uh, a lot of um, especially Catholic, but also a lot of devout Jewish students. Right. So you correct me because you're far more knowledgeable about this stuff. I'm a level 12 Strauss. No, like you you're are. level 12. Right? Uh, in our Dungeons and Dragons campaign, I would be killed early in the in the adventure. <laughs> um, but uh, so my understanding is there right, there are three waves of modernity with Strauss, right? So it starts right. with uh, Machiavelli. Right. Who says that, you know, the ancients believed with Aristotle that there are ideals that are um, timeless and important that bind a community together and that's those ideals that people should orient their lives towards, right? Uh, Machiavelli says, no, it's actually, um, uh, politics is about uh, bending people in this life to the greater good for the community, and that means that the sovereign doesn't actually have to be a good guy to sort of get people to get along, right? Something like that? It's something. It's not quite right. I think the way I'd put it, it's not wrong, but the way I'd put it a little differently is... Um, it's, this is why Machiavelli is fascinating. And you know, I have libertarians sometimes ask me, why, why do you Straussians like Machiavelli? Say, no, it's not that we like Machiavelli because we think he's good. It's because we fear he might be right about some right. things. And here's what I think he's right. He's the first anti-utopian writer. Right. And, and, and so what he said, look, his critique of the, of the classics is similar to our critique of communism. He says they're utopians. They believe that, you know, the best regime, the summum bonum and... Even though Aristotle, I think you can read him to say, it's very unlikely that we'll get the best regime. Uh, and one of the controversial readings of Strauss is that Plato's Republic is actually an ironic treatise showing you the limits of politics. By laying out what's required for perfect justice, you realize it's impossible. Do you believe that? Yeah, I think, I think I've it's, had so many arguments about this, whether oh, yeah. he was being serious or winking in that. Whole, right. right? Uh, I, I kind of think there's something to that. Um, That's what I was taught at Hillsdale. Yes. Yeah, you, I mean, as would be expected. Yes, right. well, I, I often say no. I think it's very powerful. The argument's a lot more cogent than you get from a lot of lefty interpretations of. Uh, so, one of my shorthands about Karl Marx is Karl Marx read um, Plato's Republic and didn't get the joke. Uh huh. There's something to that. Right? Yeah, okay. Yeah. That's, that's so, uh, but even if that's not correct reading of Plato's Republic, the point is, is that Machiavelli says no. We need to take people as they are and not as we wish they would be. Not just rulers, but you know, citizens. Right. Uh, and that's why you lower your sights, see? Uh, and that's the beginning of modern liberalism, which is uh, leads to lock and individualism. And now the Straussians are very critical of that. Uh, this is one of the arguments between East and uh, uh, East and West. Is oh, we should, uh, we should right? back up. So yeah, probably so. so this there, is going to get ugly in a hurry. Yeah. So uh, again, this is this is next level dorkiness. But um, <laughs> there are two camps of of Straussians. There's the East Coast Straussians. Really, the last one left is Mansfield, right? Of the of the first yeah, order. Yeah, well, you could say some of the Chicago Nathan Tarkov is still around. Some of the Stephen Smith at Yale, you'd think of as Easterners, but I think that feud has diminished. But carry on. Yeah. So in the 1990s, this is one of the things that made it sort of fascinating. Right. It was these huge fights, and then there were the West Coast Straussians centered around Claremont. Yeah. And but they've they've spread, you know, <laughs> and uh, they're sort of Jesuitical that way. And so one of the oh, so I should back up. One of the reasons why I was so fascinated with uh, the Strauss stuff was that my freshman year at Goucher College, um, there was a professor who did not get tenure because he had kept secret that he was a Straussian and it came out at the last minute in the tenure process. And he oh, would yeah. have gotten it and then they found out 
And they said, oh, well, you violated the principles of, and I might be butchering this. I don't want to <laughs> do a disservice to the guy. Um, I will tell you off air who it was. People can figure it out. But um, you violated, the, they use this as an excuse that the, the dishonesty of keeping this sort of secret. But at the same time, he never would have gotten tenure if he had been open about it. Yeah. And since then, it, so at the time, I would learn that, oh, no, there are a lot of Straussians out there, but they don't tell people because it's sort of like the secret brotherhood and they, they'll get in trouble if people know. <laughs> and so anyway, the West Coast Straussians, the they're much more um, interested in more modern political figures. I mean, like some like Locke, but really Churchill, Lincoln, right? Harry Jaffa is the right. Lincoln guy of among all, you know, right. to, to beat all Lincoln guys, yeah. right? And um, and for a while there was a real fight there, in part because of the correspondences between Walter Burns, right, and Harry Jaffa, who wrote viciously. Yes. Highbrow attacks on each other, right? Uh, yeah, and I really regret it all. But you that. wrote a book about it. Yeah, that's right. Because, well, you know, they died on the same day, which I just thought was like too much like Jefferson. Yeah, no, it's perfect. So yeah. strange. And, and you know, I, I, I was not the only one. I tried to broker peace a couple times between them, and it just couldn't really be done. Um, although, well, I think what should be said is that there's a theoretical difference there about how Locke should be understood. And that gets all very, I understand all that. It gets all very recondite. I don't think most of your listeners would be terribly interested in it. I think there's this difference that is more interesting. Um, you mentioned that the, the West Coast people would love Lincoln and Churchill and you know, statesmanship is what they're right, about. Right. But that really means is in a broader scheme is they're much more interested in politics and they're more political, yeah. in the high sense of that word. The so-called Eastern Straussians, Alan Bloom would have been the most famous. They're more interested in being philosophers. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I thought Bloom was terrific. Um, and I thought Jaffa's attacks on him went too far and so forth. Um, uh, but they're more like the sort of modern Lockean liberals who say we're all individualists. Let's just let's just tend to our private gardens. They were less interested. So you know, Jaffa wrote Goldwater's famous right. a line: "Extremism, defense of liberty, is no vice." The East, East Coast Straussians would never have written a speech for a politician, a grubby politician, right? right. right. And. Now, I think that that's sort of a big, that's sort of a minor divide, I think. And in fact, the, the sort of bitterness that, you know, I have to say, as brilliant as Jaffa was, as wonderful he was to learn from, largely his fault for the bitterness of it and the personal nature of it, which I think was too much. But, but you, know, since he, you know, since Jaffa got old and now he's died a few years ago, that difference has really diminished quite a bit. Yeah. What was the famous but, line from William F. Buckley about Jaffa? Oh, yeah. It was, if you think Jaffa's hard to argue with, try agreeing with him. It's yeah. nearly impossible. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. So we'll get off Strauss seeing yeah, him in right. a second. But, you know, I couldn't let it go. Um, but the reason why I want to get to the, the Machiavelli thing, which I kind of butchered, but is, you know, and then there's the second wave with Rousseau right. and then the, the third wave. Anyway, yeah. forget all that. It, part of the rap on Straussians is that they, and I'm not saying that you believe this. I, I know you don't believe this, but. One of the things one hears um, <laughs> is that the Straussians really understood that there is no God and that it is all a bleak world. And that was what Machiavelli was really about. Um, but the masses can't know that. Yeah. And so we have to structure society in such a way so that they live good lives. Because if, if they find out that Nietzsche was right, we're screwed. Yeah. How f fair or accurate is that? You know, uh, I think it may be true of some individuals. Uh -huh. I don't think that's a fair characterization of everybody because you had a lot of uh, uh, a lot of Strauss Strauss students who were Jesuits. Ernest Fortin at Boston uh -huh. College, I think it was Boston College. Um, Francis Canavan, who taught at Fordham for years. Um, a lot of you know Jewish scholars, um, and, and then who wrote about theology. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, you know, people who uh, studied with Strauss said you all often have a lot of these Jesuits in their in their clerical collars in the classroom. 
And so, but that's not a new idea with, uh, you know, sort of modern thinkers. I mean, people say you could find that teaching as far back as some medieval philosophers. Mm-hmm. You know, they say, you know, Maimonides was secretly an atheist. And maybe this is true. And uh, and it's the idea that you need civil religion, mm-hmm. right? That's good. Religion's good for people. That's not, a, you know, a, a unique view. And, you know, that does get into some very deep and tangled aspects of morality and what preserves the authority of morality. I think what Strauss says is this. There's reason, there's revelation. They both require faith. Right. He says even reason requires faith in the same way that religion does. One cannot refute the other. Right. And he thought it's perfectly honorable to pledge. He says you either have to be a rational philosopher or a faithful theologian. He thought it was hard to harmonize them. To reconcile. Right. Uh, and, uh, and I take him his word at that. Yeah. All right. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I because I, you know I love this stuff. Um, you know I hope your hope your listeners do. I'm sorry, listeners. It's okay. Look, I mean the whole point of this podcast is either you like it or you <laughs> right. don't. You know I'm not gonna like. Uh, the last thing I freaking want to do is more rank punditry. You ah. know? Uh, will, will the tax bill pass? Yeah. So the Claremont guys, many of whom are friends of mine, yeah. and many of whom are really close, longtime friends of yours, this emphasis on statesmanship and Lincoln and and the better angels and and all of that. Can you give me a short explanation about how they've managed to reconcile that with their general support of Donald Trump? Uh, it's been hard to do. You know what I wrote but in the some week. Have managed. Right. Yes, I know. Uh, <laughs> as I, uh, uh, yeah, I, I think it's. I'll, I'll say it's problematic. Uh, as I wrote in the Weekly Standard right before the election, so some of my friends are for Trump and some of my friends are against Trump, and I want to stick with my friends. <laughs> no, I mean, I tried to be sort of neutral about yeah. this, right? I was anti-Trump. I was part of the National Review yeah. uh, gang of 22 that was the against Trump issue. And I think he, uh, uh, I'll say this about what's happening. I'm, I'm delighted that he has sold out to us for now. Yeah, no, I think that's right. There's a lot of good right? stuff that's come our way, and there's I mean, a lot of bad stuff. But, if, yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, if we could have the Trump administration without Trump, I think we'd mostly be ecstatic, right? Um, yeah, yeah, that's right. Mostly, yeah. I mean, if you just if you just shaved off the tweets, that alone right. would would bring a lot of people around. Yeah. So know. here I'll be critical of my friends because I this was the argument I made in the article a little bit, and 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 I've heard with Larry Arn about this. Um, I said, look, we're about Churchill and Lincoln and statesmen. And he says, yeah, but I noticed that Churchill and Lincoln weren't on the ballot. I said, okay. That's not a very persuasive argument. That's a binary choice. And right. I was like you. If you say I'll vote for him because I don't want Hillary. That was fine. That's argument. perfectly legitimate argument. Finding me yeah. in person of virtue. That was a stretch, right? I'm yeah. right with you on all of that. I said, yeah, but the, I think two things should be said about the interest in statesmanship. One is, is that the idea of the Claremonsters, and, and not just the Claremont people have, that really comes from Strauss, mm-hmm. who had these views too, is that the idea of statesmanship, of sort of high ideals of political practice, is an intelligible idea that modern mainstream political science rejects. Right. And they said, no, you can, and, and biography. Walter Burns, the last conversation I ever had with Walter Burns is biography is the proper method of studying politics. Right? <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, what's the core of that? Well, the old Aristotelian virtue of prudence. Mm-hmm. Now, it's true that you know, some of the arguments people make about Trump as the disruptor, those are sort of decent, practical arguments. And he's certainly doing all that. Um, but, boy, he does not have any of those characteristics we described to high statesmanship, you know, a profound an attachment to principle. Right. Whatever will work for him, right. right? And right now it's conservatives will work for him, but who knows if that will keep up. This could end very badly, I right. still think, right? Um, and then second, uh, you know, the other gra- the other thing you, we Claremonsters say about Churchill and Lincoln and others is they have a, a, a profound grasp of the circumstances that they're maneuvering in. Right. But, you know, we can't tell from moment to moment if 
Trump has any grasp of, yeah. uh, of things, right? And so we're keeping our fingers crossed that we don't blunder into a war with North Korea, right? right? Um, well, it's all eight-dimensional chess. You'll see. <laughs> yeah, right. Underwater, right? Yeah, yeah right. underwater. The, right. Yeah. Um, the, the only thing I would add to that, and I agree with all that, is you know, the traditional understanding of rhetoric, properly understood, yes. Is, yes, right. is the way you frame questions about what is best for people to believe. And yes. the way Donald Trump's I – mean, people say, oh, you don't like the way he talks. And I was like, yeah, I really don't. <laughs> you know, and, and I think it's important. I, I've been – not wholly, but I've converted a lot to Deirdre McCloskey's stuff about the importance of rhetoric. Yes. And it's – you know, it, ideas and words are basically the prism through which how we understand reality. Yeah. And the sort of dumbed-down Nietzschean nature of how Donald Trump talks, I think, is doing lasting harm. And you can see that in the politics about – yeah. Roy Moore, you know, I mean, we, friends of ours just published at, a, uh, at the Federalist, you know, this when we're recording this this week um, from a philosopher making the case that voting for Roy Moore um, is the lesser of two evils um, and that and, and just sort of rationalizing away sexual assault on teenagers. Yeah. And uh, that rhetoric is damaging. Right. I mean, the, the argument's stupid. People reject it. But. It's an example of how people are internalizing this sort of um, whatever leads you to victory is the right thing, even though it's setting the seeds for a longer term defeat. Yeah, I, I, you were in heated agreement on this point. Okay. No, I mean, if if someone says, uh, "Look, we, we, you know, we have to have every single vote in the Senate," I understand that, and I'll say, "Okay, you don't have to make a stupid argument that it's a good vote." Right. Just That's shut right. your mouth and vote for him. That's right. And and then, by the way, hope that he doesn't stab us in the back, which is what I think he's going to win, and I think he's going to be a nightmare for McConnell. Oh, yeah. And, no, he's going to be like so, in, in an escape monkey from a cocaine study. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be terrible. But back to your earlier point, I mean, one of the first books the Claremont Institute ever published is, I still have it on my shelf, is Rhetoric and American Statesmanship. And you can use uh, quotes from that book to make a critique of Trump. Quite, yeah. And I have a little bit. But So... Um, so uh, one of the so as I mentioned at the top of this, uh, Matt Continetti was on here and we had a conversation about the history of the conservative movement. And it was, uh, I, what I wanted to do was actually just do what I pitched to Matt, but neither of us could stick to it. Was um, sort of doing it as a conservatism one hundred and one sort mm. of glossary. What is a paleocon? What is a neocon? What is all, all right? Yeah. We're not going to do all that now no, because right, yeah, we're, right. we've got long into it, right. but. You wanted to revise and extend some of the subjects of that we we had talked about. You don't have Maybe, to if you don't want to. No, well, I was listening to it saying yes, 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 and and I kept waiting for the next sentence, uh -huh. um, which uh, and I thought also it was a little bit of a generational thing. You know, uh, you mentioned that uh, you 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 heckle people who haven't read George Nash's book. Right. I read the book when it came out in 1976 in high school. Shows <laughs> much. I started reading National Review in the eighth grade in 1972. Is how much of a nerd I am. Um, and the the one thing I thought to complete that account, which is very good, there's nothing wrong with the account that you guys gave, um, and you came close to talking about it, is um, the old right. Well, this is named the Remnant Podcast after yes. the Knock essay, right? That's right. I love reading Albert J. Knock. I've gone back to so much Knock in the last couple of years. But I think he has one really big defect. Uh, he has he's very anti political. Yes. Right. He is, by the way, his biography of Thomas Jefferson. Have you ever read his Jefferson? No, I haven't. I hear it. It's supposed to be really good. It is. It does not mention the Declaration of Independence once. Really. It's the strangest darn thing. <laughs> and, and, you know, so Buckley grew up, you know, Knock was kind of his private tutor. But, you know, uh, Paul Elmer Moore and uh -huh. some of the other people you mentioned, they were conservative, but they didn't like politics. They're very grubby. Right. It was a grubby business. 
you can't fault people who say that, by the way. That's much, very much a libertarian disposition. And I think what really marks out the modern conservative movement, whether you want to pick Mont Pelerin Society or National Review or other things that happen, is they decide to get political and start talking about policy mm-hmm. and being a political movement intending to change things. No, that's right. Nock was never interested in changing. It was what the remnant's all about. That's the let's whole just, point of the remnant is that you can't change it. Exactly. Yeah. Let's just pack up and go be communities of virtue and do right. our own thing. And, and, you know, he's huge fun to read, right? Uh, but... And I think that's an important point. Then um, the other reiterates something you said, and I've been beating on this a long time, is uh, because I think that particular phase of conservatism was reacting to the New Deal and communism, mm-hmm. they did completely miss the violence done to the American uh, story by progressivism. Right. And I think that's been the new frontier of conservatism of the last 20-some years. Right, right. Uh, and that's you're right, it's totally missing from the National Review of, of that era. Um, yeah, no, it was amazing to me when I was working on liberal fascism, which yeah. relied on a lot of Claremont stuff, you know, and I've always been honest and open about that. I learned a lot um, um, from Pistrito and, right. from, and from Charles Kessler and all those right. guys. And I was like, this is fascinating. How come I don't know any of this? And so I'd go in the archives <laughs> of the National Review, and then you'd read pieces from, like, you know, alums of the Wilson era and and even William F. Buckley. And they just they just yeah. they thought that was all normal. What was going right. on under Wilson? And, and you know, Wilson was sort of a Presbyterian guy with certain conservative, small right. C conservative aspects. He ran as a more conservative guy than T.R. Right. You know, right. Um, so it's very confusing. Yeah. But how you could look at the New Deal as not a natural extension of yeah. of Wilson's war socialism. I just. Seems baffling to me, and Robert Higgs did a lot of great stuff on yes, that. Right, but um, no. So the 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 thing I was trying to get at with 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 Matt about the the George Nash book, and listeners who, if you're still here, you're probably interested <laughs> enough in this. You really should get the book. It's a great book. Um, is that it's one story of conservatism, and it's become orthodoxy yeah. because no one else has done. I mean, there have been some other good conservative historians, but they're really telling a specific story within that framework. Yeah. And no one has sort of broken out of it. And I'm not, I don't know what the alternative story necessarily should be. I'm not right. that up to speed on a lot of that stuff, but it, it, it feels like there's room for someone to do a new version of that. Yeah, that's probably right. Uh, and, and one of the great mysteries to me, uh, I, there's not that much to study really, is why was there no significant intellectual resistance to progressivism at the time? Right. And that carries into the New Deal. You see some in the New Deal, but it's sort of general and it's sort of like knock, you know, this is all crazy. So, you know, Mencken. Mencken, right. Uh, and I mean, there were a few people in the progressive era who said, you know, there's some problems here. Elihu Root was actually pretty good. Randolph Bourne. Randall, there were a few, but there was no, you know, book saying, wait a minute, we've just overthrown. The American founding. It just wasn't there. Yeah. Nobody yeah. does it. So for listeners who don't know, um, one of the sort of add-on things that the sort of Claremonster, not necessarily Straussian thing, but not, but consistent with it, is that the the there was a progressive revolution in American life um, at the time of Woodrow Wilson, led by Woodrow Wilson, who was the first president in American history to openly disparage the Bill of Rights, openly disparage the Constitution. And the Declaration of Independence. And the Declaration of Independence. Say they were no longer relevant. It was a time for a Darwinian understanding of politics. Let's get rid of this old Newtonian understanding of checks and balances. We, Living Constitution. Come, yeah, Wilson used that phrase. Comes right? out yeah. completely out of there. Yeah. And and so it's sort of what we're talking about here is how weird it was that the conservatives who hated what FDR was doing to the court, hating what he was doing to the rule of law, hating what he was doing to the economy, was basically just ripping off ideas from the progressive era, and it's just it 
didn't dawn on the founding era editors of right. National Review, you know. I think that might be in part because Roosevelt was very clever. I think he knew that Wilson's approach to this was, was uh, a mistake politically. Because Roosevelt, especially in 32 in the famous Commonwealth Club speech, he talks about the Declaration of Independence and mm -hmm. property. And now he twists it all around and he does lots of mischief with it. And he even mentions Woodrow Wilson along the way. But I think he wanted to refound progressivism uh, and some of the people around him very much and say, no, it's all part of the American tradition. We're not really, you know, and it confused everything even more. Which is part of the reason why he was the guy who basically pulled off the lexic lexicological switch. Um, or terminological switch of going from progressive to liberal. Yes. Right. Because right. liberal sounds, oh, that goes back to Locke. Ooh, that's right. great. You know, yeah. and, um, and isn't it funny what's happened? I was just thinking the same to somebody the other day. You know, back in the 80s, 70s and 80s, when I'm in college and graduate school, progressive meant you were a communist. No, that's right. <laughs> right? Now, today, and, and, you know, Reagan and the conservatives were so good at demonizing liberalism that they revived progressivism. Right. Well, also because <laughs> FDR, so, you know, like, yeah. successfully took the word liberal and made it mean what right. we think of it as today. And so he abandoned the word progressive, and the people who took it over were Henry Wallace and the actual communists. So, like, right. in 48, Wallace runs as the progressive candidate. He's just a freaking commie. I mean, right. he's just like a straight-up commie, you know? Right. Um, anyway, um, so we're running yeah, we're, a little long here, but you can tell I actually like this stuff, and it's so much easier for me to talk about than trade policy. Um, you may have leveled up in your conservative nerdiness after this podcast. Yeah, that's yeah. fine, you know? Yeah. Um, so, as you know, I've asked almost every guest here this weird question about what would the average person be surprised by that either surprised you when you came to Washington or got yeah. involved in this stuff that is contrary to the normal expectation or conventional wisdom? Well, I don't know if it's contrary, but sort of th three surprising things. First, coming here right out of college. Well, first of all, I came here for a semester in college, and I went to college in Oregon in the 70s. And I got here, and my first impression was, there's no granola here. <laughs> right? I mean, I know True. the Whole Foods is here now, but this is not a granola kind of place. No. You know, in those days in Oregon, everybody wore those, uh, you know, the big parkas that make you look like a human hand grenade. Uh -huh. Nobody wore those here. Right? <laughs> uh, and that's my second point is, because uh, uh, this will end with some advice for Jack Butler here. Second point is, is that, um, I don't know this is a big, big surprise to people, but Washington has the most strict dress code this side of Starfleet. Uh -huh. uh, you know, nobody wears blue jeans here. You know, in that's fact, changing. Yeah, it is changing some. But I, I first came here again in the early 90s, and my wife worked for one of the K Street law firms. And so the people, we got to have casual Friday. Remember, that was the big Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, her law firm had a five-page single-space memo on the dress code requirements for casual Friday. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> By the way, Heritage Foundation never would go for casual Friday. Yeah. You have to have donor-friendly apparel at all times. Right? <laughs> AEI was never that way. It was, you know. But uh, so, yeah, it's a very strict dress code. And I'd have parties on the weekend that say casual and that meant people wouldn't wear a tie with their jackets and yeah. slacks and loafers. And I said, no, I mean, you know, I'd be my Birkenstocks and shorts and a T-shirt grilling. And people would come all, you know, dressed nice the East Coast. That's, yeah. you know, I'm a West, I'm a Californian, right? Uh, the third one, and uh, this one might be a surprise to people. When I got here out of college as an intern for Stan Evans, I noticed hanging around Capitol Hill with other young folks I met that Congress is run overwhelmingly by people under the age of 28. Yeah. And... And then you have some older people, staff directors. So you have this sort of these doddering senators and ancient Congress people, Congress critters, and then all these very young people. They're all very smart, but yeah. they don't really know anything. Yeah. And I got to thinking, you know, I don't, not sure I really know anything. Full of lots of energy and I'm reading stuff. 
And, you know, the smartest thing I did, because I thought, oh, I'm going to go to Washington. This is a great place. It's really fun. It's just really cool. But I had the idea, you know, I think I better leave this place. And mm-hmm. I, if I come back someday, maybe as Secretary of State, right? yeah. Not really, but come back as an AI fellow, is what I was, which yeah. is what I later did. But uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think uh, the young people come to Washington, great place to come. Uh, but depending on what they want to do and where they go in life, it'd be a good idea to go away and do something else. Yeah, you know, Jack should go to graduate school. He should move to Boulder and you know train for the Olympic trials and the marathon. I don't know. Um, maybe it depends on you know. Yeah, Chris Muse used to give this advice. Chris Muse, the former president of right. AI, would tell people get at you know learn how Washington works, but don't stay so long that you become yeah sort of as as. Morgan Freeman would put it in Shawshank Redemption, you know, institutionalized. Right. You know? And, yes. right. Um, and I think that's really true. And one of the things, um, we know, we should, I should do a whole podcast just on advice for 20-somethings, particularly in this world, yeah. right? Um, I'll write that down. Yeah. <laughs> right. And because uh, um, I have a whole, you know, they have me talk to interns all the time and right. I give them the same advice and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I always tell young people that the best part the, the the best part about being young is you can afford to be poor. Yes. And um <laughs> and stupid. Well, yeah, and it's stupid too, but like you can like if I wanted like so after college I went off and I lived in Prague for a little while right. to teach English and I wanted to be a starving writer and I batted <laughs> 500 I didn't starve and I didn't write. <laughs> but um um uh if I tried to do something like that right now, yeah. it would cost me my home, right. my livelihood. Of course. Probably my marriage, um, you know, and um, <coughs> that um, your when, dogs would probably even abandon you. you know? Maybe, maybe. Right. <laughs> but, when you, but when you're like when you're 22 years old, and I know this sounds privileged for elite people, but it's it's true. Even if you're from a fairly humble background, you can go do weird stuff. Yeah. And and so what if you're eating ramen noodles? So what if you're living in a group house and it's shabby? Right. When you get older, you're not going to want to do those things. <laughs> and being, but you know, my life, my very brief time in Prague, I've been dining out on that for 25, 30 years now. It was one of the greatest things I ever did. And I could afford to do it because I had no obligations. Right. You know, and, um, and I think that in Washington, one of the things that happens, one of the reasons, one of the things I always tell, and Jack's heard me say it a million times about the Capitol Hill thing, and I'm glad you got out of there. Capitol Hill ruins a lot of people. Yes, I think that's right. Think tanks do too. If, you know, like it used to be, I don't know if it's still the case, but I remember in the 90s when I was first, in my first round at AEI, you would meet kids, kids, you know, people two years older than me, 26-year-olds who wrote a Heritage Foundation backgrounder Mm. on, you know, trade policy with China. And all of a sudden they think, well, I've reached the pinnacle of my career. I am now (laughs) a China expert, you know? And, And they would then act like these big swinging Roy Moores right. and um, uh, and and you also but on Capitol Hill which is so big you get this uh, sort of critical mass of young attractive people yeah. who care about these incredibly infin- infinitesimal degrees of status you know if you're slightly senior than somebody on some committee that means you're much more important you yeah. walk around like you're a big deal you got a better badge you get to go through a different door right it's all this nonsense stuff and they end up staying there so long that they basically don't know anything else except the ecosystem of Capitol Hill, yeah. which is only transportable off of Capitol Hill in one way, become a lobbyist right. Right? or become a politician, you know, and and they kind of just get ruined. And yeah. so I always say, if you go to Capitol Hill, that's great. 
But unless you want to be a lifer there, leave after two years, you know. And it's the same thing with think tanks. When you're a 20-something, I tell Jack this at some point, you know, not yet, but at some point I'm going to kick him out the yeah, door. Not right. because he's not doing a good job, but because it'll be bad for him to stay much That's longer. That's right. You know. Listen to the man. He speak, he speak wisdom. <laughs> Big I'll, Chief I'll, speak wisdom. I'll leave right now. <laughs> <laughs> You have an automatic door lock button here, don't you? I don't do, like, yeah. Uh, like Matt Lauer, got to keep him right. Yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> all right, so uh, do you have any, every five minutes you're writing another book, anything else you want to plug or tell people? Uh, no, I mean, I'm working hard at Berkeley. I've got a bunch of courses How much out. longer are you going to be there? Uh, another year and a half at least. Uh-huh. I may stay on longer. They say they want to keep me, so we'll see. But, Is there a tenure track possible? You know, I don't care. To say, I'm, I'm old now. I don't actually care about that. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's a long story. It would be boring to get into but the mechanics of it. But I and, may plant some roots down there for a few years at least. And it's California, and you yeah. like California. Well, it's getting harder and harder to all the time. You know, we're finally going to get the governor we deserve, a governor named Gavin. Uh-huh. I'm pretty sure it's going to be him. I mean, yeah. we, California deserves a governor named Gavin. Uh, you should just drop the last name. I know. By Gavin. <laughs> exactly. And so, and, you know, there's other craziness about the place. But this is where I'm from, and it's pleasant. And, uh, you know, I mean, California has what um, economists call exploitable asymmetries. Uh-huh. Which means, you know, that it's such a pleasant place to be that they can get away with bad government high right, taxes. Right, right. You know, Arkansas couldn't get away with California's taxes and policies for 10 seconds, right? right? But, right. I mean, but I at always some people, point— 270 days a year of sunshine and temperate weather, yeah. rich people are willing to pay a lot for that. Yeah, and, it, and also <laughs> there is, you know, it's why Silicon Valley works and things like that. But yeah. it's, it's at some point you go, jeepers, this is kind of nuts. But uh, especially if they uh, get rid of the state and local tax deduction, so— you know, it's, Which I want them to do. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm willing to take that bullet for the better, for the yeah. uh, benefit of the regime. But uh, no, I mean, I guess, aren't I supposed to get in a ritual denunciation of Sunny Bunch while I'm here? Isn't oh, I guess that's true. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, down with Sunny Bunch or, you know, get your Sunny bun- knickers in a Sunny Bunch or something like that. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> note to Sunny if he ever listens. We did not ask him to do this. No, we didn't. It, 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 he volunteered this. But, but it's a self evident truth, as we clearly Yeah, I mean, it, as Al Bundy says in Married with Children, <laughs> it is good to hate the French, it is good to denounce. Sunny Bunch, yes. and for listeners who don't know Sunny, who Sunny Bunch is, you're you're lucky. Um, so anyway, thanks so much, Steve, for coming on. Thank you, Jonah. It's been fun. Yeah, great. All right, so that was fun for me, at least. And uh, odds are that if you stuck it out, it was fun for you because you probably could tell as a listener that it wasn't going to get any more fun for you if you weren't interested in esoteric Straussian hootenanny and whatnot. And uh, so tune in next week where we'll um, talk about something else. I'm not even sure. Actually, we might have a second podcast this week because I'm going to be up in New York for a couple holiday-related things at NR, and I want to get that podcast in with uh, what Jack Butler calls British Shaggy. Um, Charlie Cook and whoever else is hanging around the offices at NR, depending on how hungover I'm going to be. And uh, plus, I have an exciting new weird thing to talk about that I'm going to keep secret. You know, one of the things I do in the Goldberg file, this weird newsletter thing that I do, is I have a various and sundry section full of weird stuff. And ever since the notorious Bigfoot erotica discussion on here, Uh, I've been searching for other things to talk about, and I have an exciting new weird thing, which I'll get to in the next exciting, hopefully exciting episode of Remnant. Thanks again for listening. Um, Oh, some other sort of housekeeping things. I hope you like this week's music in a naked attempt to uh, win me over. 
a band called Blasted Athwart, which is a Buckleyite reference or a National Review reference, sent in the music that we heard today, and it's called Immunitizing the Eschaton. And if you've been reading me for the last 20 years or if you're a student of Eric Vergelen or Vogelin, I should ask Steve how, you're prop, how you pronounce, properly pronounce that. I keep getting different advice on that. Then you know the phrase Immunitize the Eschaton, which maybe we can talk about on another episode. Um, if you have your own music that you want us to try out or if you have thoughts on this week's music or last week or you have topic suggestions or guest suggestions or you want to know just where to send me cash, the, po- the email address is uh, theremnantpod at gmail.com. We are, as of this recording, which we did on uh, Friday, December 1, we were at 983 reviews on iTunes. It would be great to be... Uh, um, get get over the top to a, over a thousand, and um, please again subscribe if you do like listening to this. It's great that you listen at the National Review site if that's where you listen to it. But it's better for for me and my dogs if you um, actually subscribe through iTunes or Stitcher or any of those places. Anyhow, thanks a bunch. I really appreciate it, and I'll see you next time. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.